And I think the norm traditionally in healthcare has been uh, an overemphasis on clinical and technical skills. I think hospitals are, are over that curve. I think they've gotten to the point where they appreciate the fact that behavioral competencies are important, but that doesn't mean they necessarily know what to do with them. And again, it's very vague. They have an idea that they want nurses who are quote-unquote patient-centered. What we do is working with enough organizations, we have a general idea of what the behavioral competencies are we're looking for in a nurse. We're looking for people who are adaptable, who are highly collaborative, who are, are, are service-oriented, who have high levels of emotional intelligence. Senior leadership now tells HR in, in sophisticated organizations, target those behaviors and build a selection system that gives us a better chance of making a hiring decision that brings that person into the organization. That's the change that we've seen. Welcome to Second Opinions, a HealthStream podcast. I'm your host, Brad Weeks. Join me as I talk to some of the preeminent thought leaders and experts working in healthcare today. In these candid interviews, we're going to hear some alternative views. We're definitely going to challenge conventional wisdom, and we're going to get a little personal. But we are looking for second opinions. Join us. Brian Warren is the Director of Healthcare Solutions at Select International, a company that specializes in the development of hiring and employee selection tools to help organizations build a strong workforce. As an attorney, Brian represented physicians and healthcare organizations in a variety of regulatory and employment law matters. He then served as Vice President and Corporate Counsel for a leading hospital management consulting firm with a particular focus on service line strategy and physician hospital alignment. He works with Select International's consulting team to understand healthcare's unique needs and develop effective solutions. He brings broad hospital operations expertise and continues to focus on the physician hiring development process and serves as a renowned writer and speaker about the physician hospital relationship. Brian, thank you for joining us. Now you've taken a very interesting road to your current role. Why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as you mentioned, I was a practicing attorney, uh, mostly healthcare law, and working directly with physicians, particularly in their relationships with hospitals. Uh, after several years of that, though, I moved over to the consulting division of Zimmer Orthopedics, and we worked with hospitals on service line strategy. My particular area of focus was uh, physician hospital alignment and physician engagement. But one of the things I noticed in working on these projects was uh, there was no secret sauce. I mean, there's basic service line strategies that work, but success or failure of the program programs really turned on the talent of the team that we had in place. Did we have strong physician leaders? Did we have a good service line manager? Was the, uh, was the staff working on the project? Were they innovative, collaborative, open to new ideas? Were they able to drive change? Um, so that made me think a lot about talent, about uh, behavioral competencies. And that's when I moved over and started working with Select because that's, that's really our bread and butter. That's our area of expertise. Uh, there's a topic that many of our listeners certainly relate to, and that is uh, this notion of organizational culture and how to build and sustain a culture of excellence. Um, in particular, I want to ask you, based upon your background, your expertise, how can healthcare organizations create a culture of patient-centeredness or a culture of patient safety? What does it take to get there? 
as an attorney, I got to work with companies in lots of different industries. I wasn't solely focused on healthcare. Uh, and then when I was doing my consulting work, I worked with probably 150 different hospitals around the culture or the country. So I got to see uh, what culture looked like and what it felt like. But here at Select, we're, we're a little more methodical about culture. And one of the mistakes we see, particularly in healthcare, is that this concept of culture is, is too vague. Uh, so we work with Toyota. We've worked with them for a number of years. And Toyota very specifically defines the culture. And more importantly, I think they define the behaviors that support that culture. So when we think about a hiring system for Toyota, we target folks who have the behavioral competencies that make them likely to thrive in a lean uh, environment. And then they reinforce those behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis. So when we build a hiring system for a hospital, we target very specific behavioral skills, particularly for safety necessarily. So in safety, we would think about hiring people with a high level of conscientiousness, attention to detail, or a locus, control, a locus of control. If we're thinking about hiring people who are more prone to provide patient-centric care and who will thrive in a patient-centric culture, we're looking for things like service orientation, adaptability, emotional intelligence, compassion, and collaboration. Candidates with those attributes are more likely to be successful uh, in those situations. I like to tell the story about Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. They built a big, beautiful new hospital. It's one of the top 10 new uh, facilities in the country. But they brought their old culture, and they recognized that. So to their credit, the senior leadership team defined a new culture, built certain initiatives into their five-year strategic plan, uh, and they've had great success. And one of the reasons was that we defined a hiring strategy built around certain attributes and they've seen improved patient satisfaction scores, a more engaged workforce, and actually now that entire UPMC system has adopted the selection processes and tools that we put in place at Children's Hospital. Give us some more examples of those human elements that organizations need to be looking for. We like to tell clients that you can have all the processes and technology in the world, but if you don't have the team to execute, you're not going to have much success. And we've seen hospitals implement one patient satisfaction program after another and just not uh, move the needles. And that's, that goes back to this concept of behavioral competencies and behavioral skills. And about 10 years ago, I think any discussion in healthcare about competencies pretty much began and ended with joint commission competencies. We didn't think about behavioral competencies like a company like Toyota would. Um, other industries decades ago identified that these behavioral skills are probably more predictive of job performance than clinical and technical skills. So if you think about um, nursing or other clinicians and frontline staff, if they struggle or if they don't perform up to the level you'd hope they would, it's rarely because of technical and clinical skills. Certainly that's the baseline. We've got to have people with technical and clinical skills. But the folks who struggle, and when you think about um, folks who have performance issues, it's because they aren't adaptable. Uh, they aren't collaborative. They don't have a high level of emotional intelligence. Um, that's where they struggle. We have a client that at one point would not, for instance, consider a candidate to work in dietary unless they had healthcare experience. We taught them that it was a better approach to define very specific behavioral competencies that predicted su success on the job and then build a hiring system around those behaviors. So they like to tell the story of, of Dan the baker. Dan was a gentleman who was a baker who applied for a job with the health system in dietary because he felt that he had a higher calling. He was very service-oriented. He wanted to work with people. Uh, they would not have even interviewed this person before, but he scored really well throughout the selection process, went through the interview, was hired, was an outstanding employee, and loved helping patients so much so that he ended up going back to school, got his nursing degree, and now he's an outstanding nurse. So that's a great example of 
focusing on the human nature, behavioral traits and competencies that predict success other than some of these gut instinct and traditional criteria that have been used in the past. How do you approach defining competencies in healthcare and how does your definition and your approach perhaps differ from the norm? I think the norm traditionally in healthcare has been uh, an overemphasis on clinical and technical skills. I think hospitals are, are over that curve. I think they've gotten to the point where they appreciate the fact that behavioral competencies are important, but that doesn't mean they necessarily know what to do with them. And again, it's very vague. They have an idea that they want nurses who are quote unquote patient centered. What we do is working with enough organizations, we have a general idea of what the behavioral competencies are we're looking for in a nurse. We're looking for people who are adaptable, who are highly collaborative, who are, are, are service-oriented, who have high levels of emotional intelligence. So we know we're going to measure some combination of those competencies. But we'll tend to do what we refer to as a job analysis in some level. I work with industrial organizational psychologists. This is what they do. They go into the organization uh, between surveys, observation, meeting with senior leaders. We get a sense of what the vision is. And then we start to break it down job by job, job family by job family. What are those attributes? <clears throat> At the management level, for instance, we want to move managers from being managers of day-to-day -day tasks to being somewhat innovative and having some leadership skills. So we'll measure those there. Uh, some organizations in some job roles want to really emphasize uh, collaboration as, as, as a point of emphasis because it's critically important for success uh, in that role. And again, senior leaders are starting to pick up on the fact that these are the attributes that determine uh, success. So I mentioned a, a few times the concept of emotional intelligence. And it's really important because, for instance, I think early on in our work in healthcare, like anybody in our field, we focused on compassion and empathy with nurses. It just makes sense that you would want caregivers who are high in empathy and compassion. But we found out that that particular attribute was not necessarily as predictive of performance and success as we had hoped. And then some more research came up with the concept that it's more important that they have a high level of emotional intelligence. So if you imagine a nurse that has a high level of empathy, they really at their core care about the patient. But if they don't have a high level of emotional intelligence, which includes compassion, but also social and self-awareness, they, they can't pick up on the patient's needs or the family's needs. So while they may care, that compassion isn't of much use to them if they don't know how to use it. So we have changed the measurement in some of our uh, behavioral assessments. As opposed to just measuring compassion, we measure emotional intelligence, which has several sub-constructs in there, including empathy. And we found that that behavioral skill is more predictive uh, of performance. And if you think about, you, you mentioned patient safety, if you think about patient safety, we've learned from other industries that there are some very particular behavioral attributes that pr predict whether someone is more likely to follow procedures every time because that's what it gets to. So concepts like conscientiousness, attention to detail, uh, locus of control, those are behavioral personality attributes that come into play when we're thinking about someone who will follow uh, processes and procedures every time. If you think about um, universal precautions, in other industries, they would never deviate from something like that. If that's the rule, put the hard hat on, put your hand on the rail, they do it every time. It's not uncommon, and I think we've all seen this, for even staff at the hospital to take shortcuts or ignore universal precautions if they're only going to be in the room for a moment. 
we can't have that if we really want to have a, a true patient safety culture. So again, we come back to those very specific behavioral competencies, hire people to those and enforce those and train to them as well. Why do you think healthcare is different in that regard and maybe does have the propensity to take shortcuts more so than, than others outside of healthcare? You know, that's a great question. Uh, and I think it comes back to your original point of culture. I think we've allowed it. Um, our safety team that works in energy, energy sectors and manufacturing will tell us stories of when they're in the physical plant, if they're with someone from the uh, client's team and they walk up steps and don't put their hand on the handrail, they're immediately corrected. Um, we've seen organizations that even if you're just getting out of the truck for a moment to do something, you put the hard hat on. In healthcare, there's such a culture of expertise, for instance. There's a great deal of professional autonomy. We trust physicians and nurses to make sound decisions. Um, so the culture has always been one of uh, a culture of expertise, not a culture that's driven by adherence to policies and procedures um, because we know that's in the best interest. But hospitals get it. You know, hospitals are starting to use checklists. Uh, we work with a hospital in South Carolina that had great experience where they initially implemented an OR checklist and didn't really see a positive impact. And the reason was the human element. They went back uh, and reinitiated the project, but they met with teams. They communicated with teams about what they were trying to accomplish. And once the team owned the process and the purpose, then that OR checklist was highly successful in making patients safer. So they had to address the cultural piece first rather than just implementing the process. When you look at the airlines or you look at manufacturing or the energy sector, they have for decades built a culture of adherence to practices that they know work. And we're just not there yet with healthcare, but we're getting there. Brian, you've written about the importance of organizations having a talent strategy and how the behavioral competencies that you mentioned relate to and connect to that talent strategy. How important is it for healthcare organizations to have a talent, uh, a sort of a strategy around talent management in healthcare? You know, it's not that long ago, Brad, and you, you remember this, that uh, HR didn't have a seat at the strategy table. In healthcare, HR was an administrative task. Nursing looked at HR as the department that finds us nursing candidates and will decide which nursing candidates we want. At a company like Toyota or GE, HR has always had a seat at the strategy table because if the organization says, we have to change our direction, we have to change the way we think about the care delivery model, we have to respond to healthcare reform, they would then turn to HR and say, what talent strategies will support that? We're just getting to that point in, in healthcare. It's been, a, it's been a great development. We've seen the, the role of HR evolve, and they do have a seat at the strategy table. So we need senior leadership to tell HR, these are the types of people that we need. From that, we will, for instance, build an organization-wide behavioral competency model. If you ask one of our clients what they're looking for in, in a nurse, they can define it with great specificity. Same thing at the manager, director level, or frontline staff. And those competencies have changed. Historically, we wanted the environmental service worker who showed up and did his or her job. That was the, the sole measure of whether they were good at their job. Now, we want an environmental service worker who's attuned to the needs of the patient and the family. We want them to go above and beyond just cleaning the room. So that's a, that's a new type of person that we're looking for. Senior leadership now tells HR in, in sophisticated organizations, target those behaviors and build a selection system 
that gives us a better chance of making a hiring decision that brings that person into the organization. That's the change that we've seen. Define the competencies, put tools in place, put a process in place, and give yourself a better chance with every hiring decision to bring someone in that's going to contribute to that culture that you have in mind. Would you say that the differentiating factor, if there is one, between those organizations that have performed the best and those that have fallen short, I guess I'm wondering which step along the way do they tend to fail at? Is it the definition component or is there something down the line that they don't do quite as well as those that that succeed? The organizations that struggle, I think it's similar to the cultural issue they have. Uh, It's communication, it's communicating the vision, it's creating buy-in, it's the idea that we are going to take hiring managers and get them to embrace their role as talent evaluators. Again, historically, the manager saw HR's job as sending me candidates. I'll pick the one I like. If that one doesn't work out, send me some more. When it's successful, the hiring managers realize that part of their job is to build their team. And another part of the job is to grow and develop each of those members of the team. And a big piece of that is behavioral skills. If I bring someone on board who's a sound clinician, think about a physician, sound physician, physician, great clinician, um, but not a high level of emotional intelligence, or they struggle in their interactions with patients and colleagues, we can't allow that. There's too big an investment in that person. So how do I understand their attributes and allow them to develop those skills? So I think the organizations that do it well take that holistic approach. The organizations that struggle Take the approach that we're going to plug in some tools, we're going to do some training, we're going to put some processes in place and hope for the best. And that goes back to the idea of culture. You have to be a culture that values talent. You have to be a culture that thinks very critically about who you bring into the organization and a culture that once I have that person on board, I'm going to work with them to develop behavioral skills, not just because it's good for them, but it's good for me as an organization. Those are the organizations that are successful. We spend a lot of time talking at the... um, outset of our selection strategy or hiring system um, projects, we spend a lot of time talking about the change management strategy. Again, for us, finding an assessment tool that we can plug in that will be predictive and will bring some objective data to the process, that's sort of easy. Now, you've got to get the right tool. You can't be picking some general personality test that you bought online. That's, that's not going to work. But change management and how you create that buy-in and how you roll this thing out to be successful is really the key. We had a discussion with a client the other day. We were building a behavioral competency model for a large healthcare system. We were meeting with groups of nurses. uh, And they noticed that when we met with nurses who come from organizations that are on the magnet journey, that those nurses talk about uh, nursing success in terms of all of these behavioral competencies. When you ask them what makes a nurse successful in the organization, they go to immediately to the person who's a problem solver, who's innovative, who's adaptable, who has a vision of what nursing needs to be and they want to grow and, and they want to make this work for patients and for the nursing profession. When they met with groups of nurses from organizations who weren't on the magnet journey, those nurses talked about success in terms of clinical skills, technical skills, and processes. That's what they were stuck on. So to your earlier point, it's the differentiator. The challenge that some clients struggle with now is while they get that, they don't understand how to build a deliberate strategy to get there. So the children's hospital example I gave you, they built culture into their five-year strategic plan. That's 
that's perfect. I mean, what vision? And then they define specifically the 10 or 12 initiatives they had underway to move them in the direction they wanted to go to. So being very deliberate and dealing with the change management pieces is really the differentiator. There was a recent report by Time Magazine, actually a cover story, that discussed the importance of psychometric testing. In particular, I found this really funny. It, it covered how seemingly strange questions like, do you understand why stars twinkle? Or would you rather read than watch TV? Questions like that can actually help predict an employee's success in their role. So what do the science and literature what, what do those things say about the power and effectiveness of psychometric testing in employment? Yeah, I saw that article. It was a great article because I think it brought to the forefront the idea that <clears throat> this is a widely used uh, strategy. And it's been used in other industries for a long time. It's relatively new in healthcare. But I think at the same time, you know, they were trying to be a little provocative. So those examples that you gave, <clears throat> they certainly get your attention. They're probably not the greatest examples, though, because, for instance, when we build a behavioral assessment for a selection decision, you know, it's very specifically asking questions that get at certain attributes. Uh, we don't, for instance, recommend using broad personality tests like the Myers-Briggs uh, or the DISC or Predictive Index. Those are, those are wonderful tools and they have their purpose. Um, but telling me that I'm an introvert uh, doesn't necessarily help you predict whether I'd be particularly good at a particular job. And in fact, we just had this discussion with somebody where we were evaluating a tool that somebody was using to select nurses. And one of the constructs was introversion versus extroversion. They were measuring that. And our comment to them was, there's no data that shows that uh, an introvert is more likely to be successful as a nurse. So we would encourage people to avoid some of those general broad personality tools and focus on assessments that are built for selection, built for the industry that measure the attributes we're talking about. The same thing with leadership. There are good introverted leaders and good extroverted leaders, but we certainly want to measure things like your comfort with delegation. Uh, are you a collaborative leader? Do you like to work autonomously? Uh, what is your actual leadership style? What are those sp specific attributes that will go into whether uh, you're successful or not? And as far as the science of it, you know, I'm not an IO psychologist, but I, I work with tons of them here. And it's a field that's been around for a long time. The military has been using behavioral assessments uh, for decades. Even uh, professional sports, uh, they make extensive use of these. You know, uh, the Olympic Training Center at the U.S., they will not only measure, of course, all of the physical attributes of athletes, but they want to understand their personality. Um, you know, how are they going to respond to training? How are they going to respond to stress? And that helps us, if you think about it, in hiring a nurse and also developing them. So the science is pretty sound. We do probably three dozen validation studies a year where we take the assessment scores and compare them to on-the-job performance to show that they're predictive and to make changes to make them more predictive. And it cuts across every job category. Senior leaders, physicians, nurses, frontline staff, we know these tools are predictive. It's just a matter of how to use them uh, to get the greatest utility. I want to pick up on something you, you said there, which really struck a, a chord with me. I can recall conversations I've had with leaders in healthcare. I, I really think psychometric testing has sort of a negative connotation on some level, because I can recall conversations where when you bring it up, people will say, you know, well, what's the point of asking questions around whether I like dogs better than cats? <laughs> or they'll say, you know, 
why would we want to look at Rorschach's inkblot test to see whether or not I'm going to be successful? So I think you're right. I think people tend to think about the extremes that may not at all be relevant to the position for which we're actually hiring someone. Oh, there's no doubt. And one of the things I tell our, our consultants who work in healthcare, and they've had to learn this, is um, for all the right reasons, healthcare professionals are naturally skeptical. Uh, many of them are clinicians. They think very logically. They want to see the data. Um, they're not enamored with something that looks fancy and seems like it's a magical solution. That, that won't cut it for them, so they need to see the data. And, and as far as particular items, I frequently tell people no item, when I say item, I mean an actual question on the survey that is the assessment, no particular item is predictive of anything in and of itself. But if you have 6 to 12 questions uh, that combined tell us um, whether you or I is, are more or less likely to be collaborative, how we'll respond to stressful situations, will we be adaptable to change, are we highly collaborative, introverted or extroverted sometimes, that's not quite as useful, but attention to detail, that's incredibly important information as long as you know what to do with it. So if we've defined the attributes that are important and predictive for the job, and we can do that a number of ways, we can build an assessment that will the data and research and the validation studies show us, predict with a good degree of certainty whether or not that person will be successful in the role. What about development and training? It's certainly a topic that's near and dear to those of us at HealthStream. How can healthcare organizations focus not only on assessing, not only on selection, but how can they train for these attributes over time? Because clearly you want to make sure you're making the right decision up front on an employee perhaps more importantly, is you got to make this employee successful in his or her tenure with that, with that organization. And I think that's one of the exciting developments because healthcare organizations have realized the importance of these behavioral skills. That training has gone beyond the pure technical and clinical uh, content. Um, physicians particularly get a lot of training nowadays on communication style, which is critically important. Uh, but you have to keep in mind, in our world, the behavioral attributes that we measure for uh, aren't going to change over time. I score low in attention to detail. I always will. That's not going to change. But once I know that, I can make changes to my behavior. So for instance, we've built uh, a developmental tool called CARES that targets the behavioral attributes that affect your interaction with patients. So we're looking at uh, levels of empathy, emotional intelligence, again, service orientation, that sort of thing. And when we measure those in somebody, we're not saying that you should change those because you can't. I am always going to score low on attention to detail. But I can change my behavior in the way I interact with patients. Uh, I mentioned before the example of the nurse who's high in empathy but low in social awareness, not picking up on the patient's needs. That's a nurse who can start to change his or her behavior based on that. They may not be inclined to walk over to the patient and inquire as to whether they really understand the instructions I just gave them. But once they know that about themselves, they can start to change behaviors to create a better patient experience. So we like to build these into training. We've done training with uh, executives. We've done training with uh, physicians and physician leaders and certainly nurses. At the leadership level, it's very powerful to identify operational challenges facing a leadership team, i.e. they're having a hard time creating systems of accountability. If we find out that, lo and behold, the members of that team as a whole score low on holding others accountable, it's not a natural skill for them, well, that changes the way we address the problem. Uh, we had another system where they were going through a lot of change. 
they were having a hard time communicating positive messages out to the troops, so to speak, about the changes. And not shockingly, the team as a whole scored low on what we call positive impact, which is that ability to convey a positive message even in challenging times. So we were able to identify some very specific operational changes once we knew the challenges of the team. In that case, for instance, any message that's going out is very clearly defined, bullet pointed, and delivered very specifically again, as opposed to leaving it to everyone to develop their own communication strategy and message uh, for the department. So there are a lot of ways that these assessments can be built into training. One of the things I encourage is, again, measure specific attributes, tie them to operations. It's not helpful for you to tell me I'm introverted. In fact, I had a physician tell me he took an emotional intelligence assessment and it said he was low in emotional intelligence. And his comment to me was, what do I do with that information? It's more important for him to know that he's low in, for instance, social awareness or he's low in collaboration because those are specific attributes that once he understands his natural tendency, he can start to change his behavior. What does that look like specifically? I've worked with physician leaders who are incredibly bright and incredibly motivated, but have a low level of, let's say, emotional intelligence and social awareness. But they're tasked with running a meeting and running a team. I worked with a physician who led the spine care team. One of the very simple things I taught him was during the meeting, at certain points throughout the meeting, because you won't naturally pick up on the fact that people may or may not agree with you, you need to stop what you're doing and ask people if they're okay with the direction you're going in. So he was able to change his behavior develop the habit of asking that question. Same thing with a nurse. Um, if a nurse has um, is very conscientious, but a little lower on that social awareness, um, you may need to remind them to, rather than standing across the room, going through your checklist, you may need to stop with every patient, put a hand on the patient, and ask them if they understand. So they can develop very specific uh, behaviors that will overcome some personality trait attributes so that they get the outcome that they want. Would you say it's more important for an organization to find the, the correct profile for a position in order for that someone in that position to be successful, or is it more important for them to assess each individual and then figure out how to make each individual successful in their position based upon how they rank? Um, that's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think you need to do both. Uh, and here's the example. If I'm hiring a nurse and I have a I've defined what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that nurse with certain attributes. Um, I have a much better chance of success if I select candidates who are more likely to be successful. But once they're on board, I need to do everything I can to allow that person to grow and develop. Uh, and again, I'll go back to physicians because that's, that's, that's my world and where I, where I spend a lot of time. It's very important nowadays, and, and hospitals and health systems are more inclined than ever, to understand who the candidate is, uh, regardless of the clinical skills and technical skills that they bring. Um, we need to understand who they are because certain behavioral profiles aren't acceptable anymore. Uh, organizations get that. But we're also investing a ton of money and time into bringing that physician in, only to find out two years in that they're not happy, they've not grown, they've not developed, and they're moving on and we're back to square one. So I don't think you can prioritize those. I think you have to do both. If I'm looking at physicians, I need to do a much better job selecting who's the right fit for the organization. And once they're on board, I need to do everything I can to allow them to be successful. And I think people are paying more attention to this 
but I don't know that they've added structure to it. I don't even think, for instance, that a lot of the leadership academies, the physician leadership academies that systems are building, really address the issue. Uh, there's a lot of didactic training. Uh, they'll send them away to programs. But if that physician at his or her core is not highly collaborative or scores low in emotional intelligence, all of that content knowledge is not going to change that. Making them aware of it, though, and teaching them how to handle meetings better, how to handle interactions with colleagues better, um, that is going to go a long way towards uh, improving the chances of success than, than some of the, the strategies that are taken today. How is MACRA further driving organizations to think about physician selection and development? I think it fits in with the discussion we've had up to this point in that um, hospitals and health systems are looking for something a little different from physicians. In other words, success or failure is different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you could tolerate a physician who didn't follow the rules all the time, who wasn't necessarily uh, service-oriented, and who believed that his or her approach was the best approach, uh, regardless of what the data might show. What MACRA um, changes is that we're expecting a certain behavior set uh, from physicians. We're expecting them to accept the fact that we're going to look at large data sets. You're going to be evaluated uh, on your performance. And if you are outside the range of acceptable performance, you're going to change. Now, pretty much every other profession, particularly in healthcare, we functioned like that for a long time. But we are definitely asking for physicians nowadays to, one, be a great clinician, but also think about systems. So I think MACRA fits into this entire concept of uh, physicians are unique, incredibly important. Uh, even when they're employed, it's a little different than a nurse because they're, they're really the driving force behind the service we provide. Uh, professional autonomy and professional pride are still critical. You don't want to lose that. But at the same time, you need physicians to start thinking like team members. You need them to lead a little bit differently. You need to have them think about uh, the system as a whole without them losing their real sense of being the most important protector of the individual patient's rights. So they've got to think about their own patient, they've got to think about their own practice, but they've got to think about the, the pop patient population as a whole, and they've got to think of the system as a whole, and really change the way they function on a day-to-day -day basis. And some physicians do well, and some don't. And it's a direct correlation to those personal attributes. The ones who succeed are the ones who are highly adaptable, uh, who are collaborative, who have a level of emotional intelligence, uh, who can change their own behavior, who are good communicators. That's just way more important than it was before. And I think really it's going to determine success or failure more than it ever has for physicians. Healthcare, I think now more than ever, is the land of competing priorities. You've seen it. Mm -hmm. Certainly we've seen it as well at HealthStream. Um, if our listeners can take away one thing, not just from today's podcast, but also just from the, the broad perspective that you all bring at Select, what's the number one takeaway you think a healthcare employee or a healthcare leader should think about relative to the topics we've discussed today? I think it goes back to where we started, that if you're going to build a culture that is patient-centered or really values patient safety, um, you have to go back to the behavioral competencies that we talked about. And you've got to build uh, a hiring system at every level of the organization that targets those. And then you have to build 
tools and processes and courses that build on those behavioral competencies and emphasize them. And then you have to have a performance management system and tools in place that reinforce those behavioral competencies. And I think what we've seen is or hospitals that do it really well, it has a huge impact. Uh, we'll build a behavioral competency model in our world because we have to create a selection system from which to work. But more often than not, it's the first time that hospital leadership has looked at all of the behavioral skills that they value at various levels of the organization. And it's a bit of an aha moment when they see it um, because it puts it right in front of them in black and white. <clears throat> These are the behaviors we are looking for in a nurse, in a physician, in an MA, in a CNA. Um, and that makes it concrete. And I think um, if you don't make it concrete, you do a disservice to your staff because what are they going to develop towards? You know, what's the vision for them? So this process that we've created um, creates the vision for the organization uh, and has a huge impact. Brian Warren, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about what we've talked about today by visiting our website at healthstream.com slash podcast. For more Second Opinions, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or subscribe on our website.